0: Welcome to episode 319 of the AMPM podcast. In this podcast, I'm speaking with Corian Morris. Corian is one of the main guys over at Unibrands, Brands, one of the big aggregators in the space. They keep a low profile, so you might not be too familiar with him. But he's got a lot of great information to share. This is going to be a really fun episode. And I just want to apologize in advance if my voice is a little bit shaky. I'm recovering from having pneumonia, so uh, my voice might be a little bit shaky. In some parts of this but enjoy
1: welcome to the AMPM p.m. podcast welcome to the AMPM p.m. podcast where we explore opportunities in e-commerce commerce. we dream big and we discover what's working right now plus, plus this is the podcast for money never sleeps working around the clock in the a.m. and the p.m. Are you ready for today's episode? I said. I said are, are are you you ready? Ready. Let's do this. Let's do this. Here's your host. Here's your host, Kevin, Kevin King. King. Kevin King.
0: Welcome, Corian, to the AMPM podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. This should be a pleasant one to the ear for everybody because you have the voice built for podcasts.
1: Uh, Kevin I appreciate it first off super excited to be here uh, and you know second I've always kind of said if all this Amazon stuff doesn't work out I think I'll uh you know I'll either go in on the radio or uh, with podcasts
0: exactly and you, you I think you'll have a good future with that <laughs> I, th- I think we just last saw each other just a few weeks ago at the amZ innovate right you guys were there sponsoring that
1: Yeah, I feel like, you know, we've seen each other on a few occasions now. So, you know, we had a big presence at AMZ Innovate uh, just a few weeks ago in New York and it was a tremendous experience. I've been, you know, incredibly impressed by just the quality of people in the Amazon community. Uh, And, you know, I kind of selfishly am the only one that tends to experience these uh, experiences, but it was great to pull our CEO in and and several members of our team uh, to come in and experience uh, the Innovate event.
0: Yeah, you know, that event uh, was a great experience while it was there for me, but the experience afterwards was horrible. I actually ended up getting pneumonia at that event. I came back, uh, that event was on a Monday, flew back on Tuesday, Tuesday night, started feeling a little funky, Wednesday, lost my appetite, having some dry heaves, starting to get a fever. By Friday, I was down and out in in the bed, and I was like, man, I must have got a bad flu. A few other people were posting online, like, hey, anybody else get uh, the flu at uh, Innovate? A few other people were saying, yeah, I, I picked it up. I don't know if, you know, it, can't, it happened at Innovate. But, you know, it could happen anywhere along the way. But several people that were there were reporting um, that they, they got something. And, uh, you know, I did a COVID test. I did the whole nine yards. And it's like, man, this is just something not right here. And, you know, one of the things about COVID is that your, your blood oxygen level goes down. Um, so, you know, you use those little pulse meters that measure your pulse. You put them on your finger and also gives you your blood oxidation level. So I, I grabbed one of those, had my wife bring me one. And the number was like 80. And anything below 88 is like, uh, go straight to the hospital. Oh, and so wow. I was like, holy cow, that's not good. Uh, so uh, I was like, and I think I maybe maybe I just need to hydrate here. You and know, Maybe this is just the flu. So I started hydrating. I, I had one of those mobile IV surfaces come out, infuse me with vitamins and everything. And the next day, wasn't getting any better. And so I was like, I, I called my doctor, and he's like, yeah, you need to get to the ER. Going to the ER, they run a bunch of scans and say yep you got pneumonia you got water on your lungs in fact and so I ended up being hospitalized uh, for the last uh, uh, or four four days after that
1: holy cow yeah and
0: running all kinds of tests and had they put me on some supplemental oxygen to get it back up it, w- it was a mess uh, no fun uh, for for anybody so uh, hopefully you know now I know there's a pneumonia shot and I'll be getting that shot but uh, yeah that, that wasn't uh, pleasant but Speak of unpleasant, you know, we were at another ex- uh, event <laughs> together in Austin, the Collective Mind Society event uh, back at the end of October during the F1 races. And at this event, we decided, you know, we had a, you were there, you were one of the, 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 the 12 that was there. And we decided to have a little uh, contest in our, we had a little cabana, you know, inside the, the track, nice little experience. And one day we're like, let's, let's run a contest. Who wants to compete? Who, who thinks they can handle hot, spicy stuff? And I think there was like four or, five, four or five of you, about six of you, actually, raised your hand. Yes. Two ended up backing out after they found out what it was. And then four of you, including yourself, decided, hey, I'll participate in this. You know, we put a little bit of cash on the line, and it was the one-chip challenge. So what this is, is if those of you listening, it's a single chip, you know, like a single potato chip, or a corn chip, basically. Uh, but it's super spicy. So you eat this single chip, and you see how long you can last without drinking. And if you can go for an hour without drinking, you're considered like a stud. I don't know. There's different levels. If you make it 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, I think hour is invincible is what it is. And so four of you did this. You handled it really, really well. Two of the other guys, one of them was Howard Ty. He was like, ah, this is no big deal. Give me, you know, I could eat these all day long as a snack. Um, two of the other guys were like tearing. Their eyes were tearing. They were watering. They were just like, I don't know, but they, they stuck it out. All four of you made it the hour without taking a drink. And during that, that first hour, you were just totally like, I got this, no problem. And then after that, we left to go to a concert. And uh, we we're going to see uh, Green Day, uh, which is at the track there. And I think something happened uh, as we left <laughs> to you. And I'll let you explain it. Um, as we were going to that Green Day concert, I think your life changed a little bit for a while
1: that I would say that's the uh, the understatement of the year. So, you know, I think I'll preface with I love spicy stuff. I love hot stuff. Right. And so there's never been a challenge that I wouldn't take on. And, and, you know, I was an athlete in kind of a prior life. And so I'm competitive. So I'm like, OK, let's do this thing. And to be fair, I hadn't done any research on the one chip challenge. I didn't know what I was in for. Uh, so to your point, the the first hour, no big deal. You know, it's hot like my mouth is burning, but, you know, it's manageable Uh, and then I hear, you know, two of the other guys start to say like, you know, my stomach doesn't feel so great. And I'm like, huh? Okay. Well, like they did two chips. So maybe that's why generally I feel fine. And, uh, when we were waiting for the shuttle on the track, I'm sitting there and I'm like starting to feel like something's not quite right. And I'm like, I'll just ignore it. I'll try to like take in the views. We start driving on the track and the turns, get, you know, my stomach acid, I think to, to kind of, you know, go inside to side a little bit. And I'm like, okay, something doesn't feel right, but I'll, I'll keep pushing on. And then, you know, we get dropped off at the concert and, you know, I see one of the guys on his knees and I'm like, that's not good. Okay. But like, I'll, I'll just, I'll keep pushing. No big deal. 30 yards later, I get like the sharpest pain ever in my stomach. And I'm like, oh my God, I've got to stop. And it's like, it just feels like somebody's taking a hot knife and just taking it through your stomach and so i probably stopped for you know a good minute or two and and while i'm bent over i'm thinking to myself i'm like i'm in the middle of circuits of america track no like i have no refuge you know and so that's going through my mind i'm like okay we'll just push on everybody stops i make it probably another 50 yards and again the page the pain comes back and it's three times as bad and I'm like, I just at my knees, I'm like, this is the worst pain that I've ever felt in my life. And, you know, I think that time I take a second break, probably, you know, a good five or six minutes, the second go around. Um, and then slowly, but surely we make our way over to the, uh, to the, to the concert. And those two waves are the worst. I think I had some discomfort, uh, you know, for honestly, for like another 24 hours. Um, but, you know, the, the, the worst was behind me, fortunately.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to see it. You're a big guy. You used to play football, and so you're a big guy. And to see you hunkered over on the ground, <laughs> taken down by a little tortilla chip, was a, a sight to see.
1: <laughs> I'd be lying if I if I said that my uh, my pride wasn't hurt a little bit. It it you know one unsuspecting chip, and and you know when I think of hot, when I think of these hot challenges, my my default is like, oh, how bad is it in your mouth? Like maybe you'll sweat. Like no big deal. Uh I don't assume that you're going to feel it in your stomach, you know, 24 hours later. Uh, and that's ultimately, I think, you know, what, what did me in. And you're a man
0: and I just I don't want to get too graphic here, but I want to paint a picture. You said it actually hurt when you went to the restroom, too, right?
1: Yeah. So, like, f- it's weird because it wasn't any like, you know, issues with like number two or anything like that. But like it burned significantly. When I got up the next morning to go to the restroom, and uh, oh, that was a unique experience, oh, uh, and God. one that I wouldn't wish on anybody. Oh man,
0: I can only imagine. That feels hard for
1: you. Well, oh, I, I would say probably nothing compared to uh, to the pneumonia, and, and I'm you know so glad to hear that you're on demand and you're doing a little bit better now. Um, you know, I, I did actually receive a notification on my phone stating that like I was in close proximity with somebody who had COVID and it was from that week. So um, I was fortunate to, uh, to escape it. Glad you're on the men, but yeah, I would certainly never wish the one chip challenge on anybody. I, I think I've, we'll have to raise the purse next go around. I, I, I've got to be closer to probably five or 10 K uh, <laughs> to make it worthwhile.
0: <laughs> now, now we first met, I think at the billion dollar seller summit, is, is that correct? You, you came that out is. to recommend it, uh, represent the company, that you work for Unibrands. Tell me what is what is Unibrands?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh Unibrands is a strategic acquirer of Amazon and direct direct-to-consumer brands. I think, you know, a lot of people will, ref- will refer to us as an aggregator. Uh we are founded in uh September of 2020, operated in stealth mode until February of 2021, uh, and have since just seen tremendous growth. And so you know, I kind of wear two hats. I, I certainly, you know, focus on the acquisitions function for Uni Brands, but also, you know, I've as somebody who was a part of kind of the Amazon ecosystem in a prior life, understand how much valuable insight and knowledge and relationships there already be had. And I heard, you know, tremendous things about Billion Dollar Seller Summit. And so, um, you know, as soon as I, I I learned about you know Billion Dollar Seller Summit uh, in Austin, I wanted to make sure I came down and, and connect with some of the community. So
0: what is what is your background I mean I know you went to college you played foot, football in school what what happened after that what what's the progression to uh to get you to uni brands were you an e-commerce seller uh or can you walk us through that through that
1: yeah so you know it's it's a long story but um I was a, a track and field athlete and football player in college. Um, track and field, you kind of have no delusions of grandeur, right? It's like, hey, college is paid for, uh, and then you're going to have to get a real job at some point. And so it was you know, pretty clear to me that um, I wanted to pivot into the world of entrepreneurship. Uh, and so right actually out of undergraduate, you know, I discovered a love for automobiles, uh, and I started you know, a small kind of auto uh, customization shop, essentially initially doing you know, high-end car stereos, um, but eventually over time, pivoting into comprehensive restoration. So, you know, I was working with somebody in the Middle East. Uh, I would customize a car, ship it over to the Middle East. Uh, and then they would, you know, essentially sell it to uh, a client uh, who, you know, had a lot of money and had an affinity for uh, American muscle cars. This is like I a did...
0: workshop, like a garage.
1: Correct. Yes. And you, it was uh, It was
0: all yours or you had partners
1: with that? It was all mine. Um, really, you know, my background, I, I did a lot of, you know, Kind of electrical work and different things like that, um, but you could essentially think of me like a general contractor. So I had a paint shop that I would work with. Uh, I would do kind of all the design and creative for the build, the customer management, put everything together. Um, but I worked with you know the best upholstery shop called Davis Brothers Upholstery here in the Pacific Northwest. I'd work with you know really great motor builder um, and just bring kind of the best people uh, under one umbrella to, to deliver really kind of beautiful cars. And so. I did that for several years. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it, and at that time, I was actually a, a track and field coach in college as in, in high school as well. Um, just a you know fun way to give back to the community. And I would come back after practice. I'd go work at my shop for a few hours, and I noticed that you know I was just feeling increasingly tired and lethargic. Uh, and you know, over the course of noticing that for several months, um, I also started to notice some lumps in my neck and. I went to my mom's house and said, hey, you know, does does my neck look kind of weird to you? And she says, yeah, I think so. I think you need to go to the doctor. And so went into the doctor uh, and found out, you know, that I had two masses in my necks. My my lymph nodes were enlarged um, and spent the next month trying to diagnose exactly what it it was and ultimately, you know, discovered that uh, I had cancer. And so uh, at that point, went immediately into, you know, got a port installed, had it staged, uh, and went into chemotherapy and and uh, uh, eventually kind of closed the business because I just didn't have the health or you know the ability at that time to continue to run the business. And so I spent about a year uh, going through chemotherapy, radiation, um, and then once that was all done, you know, took another probably six to eight months to try to get kind of recover. You know, essentially chemo is they're por- poisoning your body, um, and so you know, it took a lot. Even though I was only you know at that time twenty seven years old, uh, it took a lot to to get. Get my health back. And so at that point, um, you know, it's like, okay, what's next? I have this entrepreneurship bug. I know what I'm really excited and passionate about. Um, you know, eventually I wanted to get I want to get into business at kind of a larger scale. And so I joined up with three older gentlemen who were, you know, very seasoned entrepreneurs uh, and launched a company in the gift novelty and souvenir space. Uh, We built out a a very robust IP portfolio and and started selling initially into brick-and-mortar retail here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And then over time, started to expand that into retail nationally, internationally, and then also broke into e-commerce. And so, spent several years doing that, scaling that company. Um, And then in 2019, uh, we were fortunate to sign an exclusive licensing agreement with a private equity firm uh, to leverage our intellectual property. Um, and so we exited that company and and kind of the rest is history as it relates to that.
0: So how did you hook up with uni brands then?
1: Yeah. So after this exit, um, kind of when we were in the tail end of, of running the company, I knew that I wanted to go back to school. One of the things about being an athlete in college is, you know, your entire life is athletics. And so it's difficult. I actually love to learn. I love being in college. And so I always knew I wanted to go back. And so in kind of our last year, as we were preparing to exit, uh, I did my MBA at University of Washington and learned about this idea of rollups, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, but I also had kind of an appetite to transition into the corporate world for for whatever kind of odd reason. So uh, directly after the the acquisition, I went to ZooLily. I spent about two years there doing strategic partnerships, working with some some of the biggest brands, and pretty quickly fell out fell out of love with the company. Um, I thought the the model was pretty archaic. Um, and so started looking at like, okay, how can I marry this interest in e-commerce with this idea of roll-ups and, you know, was kind of lucky. I, I was just searching around, uh, on uni for, for different companies that one day came across uni brands. I think at the point, at that point in time, there was four people in the company, uh, and sent over an email to said like, Hey, you guys are looking for somebody, you know, for your acquisition function, let's have a chat. And. They love my background. Uh, we immediately hit it off, and and so I ultimately joined the company as I want to say like number seven or eight, uh, pretty early on. How many are there now? Uh, so I want to say all in, we're over 150 people. Um, so it's it's been it's been quite the growth story, uh, you know, and that's part of I think what what really got me excited, right? It's it's one thing to take a company and go from you know nothing to a few million dollars, um, but to have a hyper growth story, right. To go from five people to let's say 500 people in a few years, I think is a really interesting process. Um, and I think, you know, it takes certainly skill, but a a little bit of luck as well to be in the right place at the right time to be a part of that type of story. Um, and so it's been, it's been tremendous. I'm you know really proud of what we've built. I'm proud of the culture that we've established, um, and you know, the brand that we're starting to build uh, in the ecosystem as well.
0: And what's your, what's your exact role there? Are you in the acquisitions are you in the business development
1: yeah absolutely so I, i've got a, i wear you know like any startup i wear a lot of different hats uh so my technical role is you know i'm the director of growth for the us so i really focus on identifying world-class assets for our team to acquire uh, my team will do the initial pre-loi due diligence and then we'll hand it over to our investment function that will you know come up with evaluation for the asset and then really kind of own the, the diligence process but you know as somebody who is a seller I, I feel like part of my role is to uh, be a representative of sellers, right? So whether it's from a transaction structure perspective, whether it's from, you know, how do we actually build this thing so that it's sustainable and that it's around in 10 to 15, 20 years? Um, I, I, I really pride myself in, in sharing kind of any and all insights that I have as somebody who was a seller and then that I have from great conversations with, with people like yourself.
0: So are people coming to you directly or through brokers? Are you actually also out there beating the pavement, looking for opportunities and approaching them?
1: Yeah, all of the above, right? So we absolutely partner with... Brokers, um, you know, you, I'll be the first to tell you, if you've never had a liquidity event before, uh, it probably behooves you to to work with a broker because you know there's somebody who deals with us kind of day in and day out, and they know uh, how to maximize your exit. But we also have you know technology that enables us to go out and identify world class brands, and so we build direct relationships that way. Um, and then I attend you know phenomenal events like you know billion dollar Seller some in Amazon innovate innovate uh to go out and meet people as well so I, I think you know we pride ourselves in leaving no stone unturned uh and really trying to go out and, and find great brands and and i think the other thing uh that's worth flagging with us is you know it's never about pressure right like it's really about supporting people in their journey um, when the time is right if you're looking to exit like hey let's let's have a chat i'm happy to answer questions um and you know if you work with us that's great if not that's okay too
0: so are you doing is is uni brands just doing amazon businesses or any kind of e-commerce business?
1: Yeah, so the, the answer, I think is going to changes over time, right? So if you ask me that question a year ago, it's like, hey, strictly Amazon, we want let's say 90, 90% of revenue coming from FBA uh, and then we'll entertain kind of 10% coming from elsewhere. Uh, I think today, as we've built uh, an actual platform that can operate the brands, we've demonstrated the ability to grow our brands and scale, um, I think we're a little bit more flexible. We're, we're still Amazon centric. So, you know, let's say it's a brand that's doing 60% on Amazon and, and 40% off. Uh, we're much more willing to entertain that than we were a year ago. Um, and, you know, we might even look at 50-50 split. Um, and I think that that will continue to evolve. So let's say six months six months or a year from now, um, you know, we might look to make our first outright D2C acquisition. Um, I think, you know, our kind of our view on this is, most of our brands will at least have some component of Amazon. Many of them will have, you know, direct to consumer component. And then I think, you know, there will also be a subset of brands that have staying power and, and are well positioned to go into retail as well.
0: What's the biggest value you guys can add to an existing brand by taking it over or taking it in-house?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, right? Um the I think the answer varies on a brand by brand basis, right? So there's brands out there where you know cash flow has been really tight and we can provide a tremendous cash flow and we're essentially just adding fuel to the fire or you know there's transactions that we've done where the founder has stayed on board with us and we're able to take all the things that they don't they aren't interested in or that they're not the best at and we can you know put that onto our platform and then free them up to do what they do really well right so how do those founders specifically create value for their organization whether it's new product development Um, you know, new partnerships. So I I think there's instances of that as well. Uh, I think, you know, a few things about us is we are transatlantic. So, you know, I'm seated in Seattle, but we have offices in New York, uh, Miami, London, Berlin, and Shanghai. And so one of the first things that we evaluate when we acquire a brand is, you know, can we grow this brand internationally? Can we move it into new marketplaces? Um, beyond that, we, we really look to understand, I think at a very granular level, what has the founder done well? What are they excited about? What are the growth opportunities that they have? Um, and then we really incorporate that into our growth strategy and our plan. But I think, you know, for us, it's really about, you know, we're not going to overextend ourselves. We're going to buy high quality brands that we know that we have the ability to operate well. Um, and, and we're going to deliver. So we're going to pay our earnouts. where we're going to, uh, you know, ensure that the seller has uh, an experience that they're that they're proud of.
0: How much money has uh, uni brands raised to to, to finance all this?
1: Yeah. So we've raised over $300 million uh, in growth capital to date. So that's a combination of uh, you know some debt uh, as well as some equity that we've raised. What's the
0: range typically that you're spending? Is it half a million to 5 million? Or what type of range or uh, size of businesses? Or mm-hmm. what's the largest one, for example, that you've done?
1: Yeah. So we're, we're pretty flexible, right? I think we're incredibly well capitalized. And so if there's an exciting opportunity out there, we always want to take a look at it. Um, I think early in our life cycle, uh, we would, you know, looking at kind of, let's say a million dollar top line minimum assets up to, let's say $5 million. Uh, I think that threshold now is, you know, minimum of kind of $2 million top line. And, you know, we're happy entertaining upwards of 20 million plus. I've looked at, you know, a 50 million plus dollar asset. Um, it just wasn't the right fit for us. So we, we certainly have the capital to deploy, to be aggressive, acquire large assets, excuse me, but it's really a matter of, you know, does it fit into our portfolio? We think a lot about portfolio concentration. So, um, you know, how does that play into everything? Uh, and then ultimately like, is this a business that's really growing in a category that we feel like is growing as well.
0: So for portfolio fit, do you focus on certain categories or are you open to anything? Um, or does that work?
1: Yeah, so we, we definitely are category focused. Um, so there's eight specific categories that we play in. Um, those are personal care, pet care, home care, baby and juvenile, sports and fitness, garden and outdoor, and home culinary, lifestyle, and arts. Uh, I kind of joke that feels like everything, uh, with the exception of maybe apparel and, and electronics. Um, and, and kind of our our view is, you know, generally we look to acquire you know really high quality, differentiated brands. Uh, that are anchor brands in each of those categories, right? And when you once you've acquired a great, you know, anchor brand, which typically is going to be a little bit larger, has great infrastructure, then we can start to look at okay, what are bolt-on opportunities. In those specific categories as well and so you know I, I won't mention the specific brand but we own you know a tremendous brand in the pet care space and you know, we've added a really phenomenal anchor brand uh, into its portfolio and so there's you know some synergies there uh, and we can continue to bolt on you know really great brands that, that support that anchor brand but also stand alone on their own
0: so where do you see this whole acquisition industry going it kind of came from nowhere i mean it started with like 101 commerce that they crashed and burned um and then thrasio kind of led the way and Got a lot of media attention, brought a lot of other people into this space. By some estimate, 130, 150 aggregators out there. Now, You know, multiples went way up. Now they're coming back down. Uh, like you said, a lot of them have pulled back. They're, the financing has been cut off. They're, they're not buying anything anymore. Where do you see this going? Uh, do you think this is still going to be a really robust market? Or is it going to be more choosy now from both the, your point of view as an aggregator and the seller's point of view?
1: yeah absolutely. So I, I think kind of a combination of of everything, right? I, I don't know that this model is going anywhere because I think that there's a tremendous opportunity. One of the things that our CEO Ulrich talks about, uh, you know he spent you know over twenty five years selling businesses at Goldman Sachs. And nobody has really demonstrated an ability to build a platform and, uh, sustainably operate and scale kind of micro brands. And I think consumers have really demonstrated an appetite for micro brands where, you know, if I can buy a, or purchase a product from a brand that resonates with me and my values and, and, you know, more directly addresses my needs, I think that's huge. I think that appetite uh, will continue to grow. And so I, I think we'll continue to see micro brands uh, established, grow, some of those micro brands will turn into household brands uh, as well. And I think people will continue to try to acquire and kind of roll those up as well. I think, you know, kind of in on the on the market side from the aggregator side, you know, I wouldn't I don't have a crystal ball, but I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, more consolidation where, you know, I think to your point, there is 150 plus aggregators, right? And, and a lot of people have struggled to raise uh, rounds following the rounds that they raised last year. And so I I think you will see consolidation. I think you'll see, you know, people become a little bit more niche oriented. So, you know, for us, we are across eight different categories, right? Um, you've seen this happen a little bit already. Maybe, you know, more people will start to focus on specific categories. Maybe they'll focus on baby and juvenile, or I've heard of other ones that focus, you know, strictly on supplements, for example, right, to where you can build very specific expertise, which I think helps from an operational standpoint. But also, I think, you know, as it relates to interacting with sellers, you know, I'm going to be really excited about selling my brand as somebody who only does supplements, uh, if I'm a supplements brand, because th- I know that's what they know, right. And so I-, I wouldn't be surprised to see more of that as well. I think, you know, for sellers, we're certainly in in kind of a buyer's market at the moment. So you've seen multiples decline a lot. Um, that's not to say that there's there's some of us that will still pay a really fair valuation on your business, right? Like if you have a quality business, especially in this environment, I think that's that much more impressive. And we really pride ourselves in offering a fair value uh, for your business. And so that's not to say that you won't get fair valuations, but um, you know, I think it'll likely take for the economy to start to recover for brands to start to grow consistently um and then for you know a handful of aggregators to feel like hey we know that we can operate these brands well before you start to see multiples really start to climb back up
0: do you all factor that in uh, that we're headed towards a recession and things are down you know a lot of amazon sellers year over year down 20 30% right now do you factor that in because they're not they're not having this massive growth they might have flatlined a little bit how how does that factor into when someone goes to sale or when you're evaluating a company
1: yeah absolutely so you know for us i I think one of the first things that we we like to think about is you know we, we look to buy businesses that are growing we look to buy businesses that um you know have momentum i think a year ago we might look at it in a very kind of black and white way of saying like hey in your LTM period are you seeing margin compression are we seeing category compression or things like that i think now we're looking a little bit more at you know what's momentum look like in the recent 3 to 6 months and i think something that's really important for us as people that that are operators and as people that were sellers at one point as well is to you know, we want to hear the founder's story right like I, I think it goes beyond kind of the quantitative part of all of this right where it's just numbers in in an excel sheet but it's about like, tell me the story, tell me what's happened. And I think there's instances where maybe that can move the needle, but at a minimum, we want to have a really comprehensive understanding of, of what are the drivers in your business? What are the challenges that you faced? And then we can make an informed decision on, okay, is this something that we feel comfortable? If it's maybe a little bit outside uh, of our typical kind of boundaries, one of the the things that you know, my colleague Mark likes to say is, we have a guardrails, but our guardrails are made of, are made of rubber, not steel. Right? They're they're intended to be flexible. They're intended to, um, you know, be, be able to listen and uh, and pivot when and where needed.
0: A lot of aggregators that came into the space they came with a lot of money, a lot of financial backing, uh, a lot of smart people, a lot of Harvard MBAs and really good finance people from Wall Street. They come into this, they buy a bunch of businesses, and they say, "Holy shit, we can't. Ex- how do we execute on this?" Because the guy, these operators are like little mom and pop shops for the most part. And yes. they're guerrilla marketing. They're nimble as a fly. Uh, they're not coming from a corporate world with all this structure. And when these aggregators come in, they, they try to, to execute. A lot of them have had serious, serious problems. And, and hiring good people and even training good people that can take this over. How do you guys deal with that issue?
1: Yeah, so I, I think this is where, you know, as somebody who was a seller, um, I was able to share some insight kind of internally with with our leadership team. Um, and we've, you know, our view and, and really the thesis coming into building uni brands was, you know, we actually want to acquire the brand. We want to retain the founding team and enable them to be that much more successful with their brand. And our first handful of acquisitions, we found that, you know, the market didn't really have an appetite for that. I think people were looking to, you know, Kind of cash out and and move on to whatever's next, which is perfectly fair. But uh, we ultimately did do some transactions that we retained the founders, and so we we were able to capture that expertise. We were able to capture that knowledge and insight, and then I think ult- ultimately, like we were able to capture some of the culture that they have and how they operated their brands, and let that flow into how Uni Brands operates. Um, and so that has been a tremendous value add for us. I think we're always thinking about. You know, what else can we learn? And that's why we come to events like Billion Dollar Seller Summit to learn, to rub elbows with founders, to make sure that we're staying close to that. But I think, you know, to your point, there was a lot of people that came from outside of the industry and assumed, you know, this was strictly kind of a financial play um, and underestimated the, the challenge of operating on Amazon. You know, one of the things that, that I recall is, you know, Amazon is, a, is an ever-moving target. Things are always in flux. They're always changing. So you can't necessarily just build a model and run with it. You, you really have to be uh, agile and flexible and, and able to move kind of at the drop of a dime.
0: How do you deal with the risk factor? I mean, you could have a hero product on an account that you bought, and just suddenly something happens. Uh, somebody attacks the listing. It's just something goes awry and you, you lose that whole thing. How do you mitigate that risk? What do you get? How do you factor that in? Because stuff can, like you just said, can change overnight on Amazon. You, you're cruising for three years, just just doing well and all of a sudden there's a supply chain issue or your account gets hacked and the pictures get replaced with uh, you know nasty pictures or, or whatever how do you mitigate that risk as an acquirer
1: yeah I, I don't know that there is a, a foolproof way to mitigate that risk right i think um this is where having you know those harvard mbas and those people that come from that world um can really start to become beneficial for us is you know we do a tremendous amount of work in the pre-LOI and in the post-LOI phase to really dig in deep and understand everything that's at play in the business. One to just understand like what are we buying? And you know, one thing that we do kind of in our acquisition process is uh we'll essentially, you know, once we're we're in diligence, kind of run the brand alongside the founder to understand, hey, this is happening. How do you act right what would you do here um in an instance where we retain the founder obviously we have that for quite a bit longer but let's say the founder wants to go off and do something else uh, we want to try to capture as much of that knowledge and information as possible um so that you know we can make the the best kind of decisions but i think there's no way to actually control for that I, i think the best kind of the best option on our end is to as thoroughly vet the business as possible to understand it as well as possible to understand how the founder would would act in certain situations as well as possible and then uh, respond accordingly.
0: So you guys look for any kind of product or what if it's a commodity? Do you prefer to not deal with commodities and to deal with something that's more truly unique and differentiated? Or what, how does that work for you guys? Yeah,
1: so, so that's actually a part of our analysis, right? Like one of the, the sayings that we use internally is we want to avoid catching a falling knife, right? And so part of our analysis Uh, is understanding the specific asset that we're looking to acquire under understanding kind of the adjacency. So who are the competitors? Who are the kind of incumbents in the space that are maybe slow into e-commerce, but that are going to be moving there eventually, because that's a potential risk? What's the likelihood of Amazon coming in and introducing Amazon Basics or leveraging one of their other kind of in-house brands? Um, And so we're looking at kind of all of that to really have confidence around, okay, we feel like, this is a category that, let's say, you know, we'll face competition, but we're not facing Amazon Basics or, or some other major brand coming in. So there's a, a tremendous amount of work, I think, that goes into that for us to, to feel confident and feel comfortable. Um, we do typically look to avoid commoditized products. I think you know we like to say we're looking for high-quality differentiated products. I think differentiation can show up. In a number of ways. In some instances, you know, maybe that's a really strong review mode and others, maybe it's really tremendous branding. Um, it can be a really strong repeat purchase rate. Um, maybe they're driving traffic from elsewhere onto an Amazon listing that's doing incredibly well. I, I think there's no kind of uh, single definition for that. Um, but we absolutely look for high quality differentiated uh, products and brands.
0: And are you taking them into retail as well now or just helping them uh, expand in the U.S. and internationally?
1: So currently, uh, we're focused on the U.S. and international expansion. Uh, Amazon, you know, we'll do a little bit uh, of you know uh, direct consumer as well. I think you know we, we've really assembled a world class team, and as they continue to get up to speed, we're starting to roll in you know other parts of it. So you know, do we evaluate um, expansion beyond just the U.S. and Europe? You know, do we start to think about retail at some point? I think for us, it, it's never been a rush. I think it's really about let's build a platform that's sustainable that will be here in 20 years, in 50 years. And I think in order to do that, we have to be, we maybe move a little bit slower or a little bit more methodical. Um, but that ensures that we build a really solid foundation that we can continue to build on.
0: So what's, what's the play for uni brands? Is it to IPO? Is it to and continue running? Is it to sell to a larger company and exit, uh, as a roll up? Uh, what, what's the play there?
1: Yeah, I would say the play is to build a world-class uh, CPG company. Um, you know, We're not at all focused on you know liquidity events, whether that's an IPO or a roll into somebody else. I think it really is about, let's build a special platform. Let's acquire the best brands in the world. Um, you know, Let's ensure that, that founders feel like they're well cared for uh, when they interact with us. Uh, and I think the rest will kind of take care of itself. So if
0: I'm a seller and I'm looking to sell my business and I come to you, what are... Like three main things I need to make sure I got my ducks in line for before I talk to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I love this question. I think you know the first one is think about what you want out of an exit early on, right? Like I think think about what are you comfortable with? What are you not comfortable with? And so what I mean by that are, you know, are you comfortable negotiating because we're not that we're we're going to take care of you, uh, and we want to be fair, but we're also professional buyers, right? And so, are you comfortable kind of managing all of that, or would you rather have somebody else, you know, such as a broker or a banker, come in and kind of represent you? Um, I think having your financials in order is incredibly important. Um, I think a world class accountant is is worth their weight in gold. Uh, you would be amazed at the number of of brands that I've seen that you know, the founder just doesn't have a hold on kind of where money's going, um, the margin, you know, we have a call on, hey, the margin is X, Y, Z. And then we actually dig into the PL and and it's, you know, a quarter of that, right? And so, uh, and they can't speak to where things are going. And so I think having a really strong kind of accounting and finance team is, is tremendous. Um, I think that applies to having a really great lawyer as well. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and then I think, you know, the last thing, one of the things for us when we think about the valuation you know typically you have what are your earnings and then that's multiplied by some type of multiple and the multiple is really where you have an opportunity to create added value and the multiple let's say between a 3 and a 4 times and a 5 and a 6 times often is going to be about you know some of the the other kind of intangible parts of your business so have you really kind of outlined the SOPs for the business? Have you built it to where it's turnkey ready for us to take it, to hit the ground running, and to start scaling it? Have you left some meat on the bones for us to continue to scale the brand? Have you laid out a plan for what we need uh, to be able to do that successfully? I think those are all things that can create added value for us, uh, but will also help to increase your your valuation when you're looking to exit.
0: I hear from a lot of sellers that have sold that they say the due diligence process is kind of a pain in the ass. Um, it it takes you know 60 to 90 days in some cases some people say they can do in 30 but typically it takes a little longer than that and you guys are just asking for every document under the sun uh, and every support thing and they're scrambling around trying to find it it's almost like a full-time job to sell your business on top of continuing to run your business yes any advice you have on on that aspect of things for a seller
1: yeah of course i think you know first and foremost um it's never too early to start thinking about selling your business. And this kind of goes to my prior point, right? Of having a great accounting and finance team is let's say you're looking to exit in 2024, start thinking about that today, put, put the pieces in place, you know, shoot me an email, let's have a chat because I can tell you what we need so that you're ahead of the eight ball. And so when you're, you know actively starting to entertain offers, let's say, you know, in the middle or end of 2023, you're ahead of the eight ball. You've got what you need. And that's, I think, kind of streamlines that process. I think, you know, that's the first first, and most important thing. Um, one thing I can kind of say about our experience is, you know, we actually really try to front load our our diligence process. So I would say we probably ask for more than, than most others in the pre-LOI stage. And that's because we really want to understand the business so that when we send you an LOI, that's a valuation that we feel confident in that we can stand behind with uh, that without the introduction of kind of new information. Uh, that's not going to fluctuate or change, and so I, I think that's key. I think again, you can leverage a broker. They this is what they do day in and day out, and they they can kind of act as that buffer when you're going through the process uh, to ensure that you know you're again free to focus on your business, and, and they're kind of dealing with us outside of obviously calls and, and different things that you have to take like that.
0: How important is the relationship between you and and the seller? Um, when you're approaching a business, is is it all just about the numbers on a piece of paper or is there something to it where you you like this guy or this gal or something? And and is there any personal things that's come into play when you're selling your business or is it just strictly black and white numbers?
1: Yeah. So I'll kind of talk, you know, speak out of both sides of my mouth. I think if we don't have a great relationship, that doesn't mean you're going to get a lower valuation or multiple, right? Like that's not fair. That's not us sticking to, Kind of the fundamentals, uh, fundamentals of our business, where we're going to treat all sellers fair. Um, We're going to pay a fair valuation of your multiple, whether we like you or not. Like that's, I think that's core to kind of who we are. Um, But I think having a good relationship certainly adds value. If nothing else, you just have another advocate that's pushing to get the deal done that understands your business maybe a little bit more closely than they might might have otherwise. and so I absolutely think it's beneficial to have a relationship. And at the end of the day, like we're buying your business, um, typically there's going to be an earnout component to that. And so I think having a strong relationship uh, just makes it that much easier. You know, as we because we're going to be tied together in, in some capacity. And then you know, all of the transactions that we've done where we've retained the founding team, I think we have tremendous relationships with those founders. Again, they've contributed to to Uni Brands uh, beyond you know, revenue, uh, but from a culture, from a quality, from a people standpoint as well.
0: So when you say earnout, let's explain what that is. Um, so when you sell your company, and let's say you sell it for $3 million, there's a certain amount of that that's wire transferred in cash on the day of closing. And the rest is considered what's an, an earn out to where, where you have to stay on, advise or manage it for a certain amount of time, or the company has to hit certain sales targets and then you get you get paid the rest of that, and maybe even a little bonus if it goes over a certain thing. What is typically the split? I know every deal is a little bit different, but what's a typical split between cash and pocket percentage and future earnings or earnout percentage? And how long is that earnout usually?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's going to vary with, with kind of every acquirer. Um, for us, typically, I think you'll see cash at close between you know 70 and, and kind of 90%. Um it varies. I think we we tend to be a, a little bit heavier on the cash of close side. Um and then typically we have two earnouts, so we have a, a binary and a pro rata. So binary is based off of, you know, hey, do you hit this threshold, let's say hypothetically 20% uh growth? Uh then you'll, you know, receive that first earnout and then you'll receive the second earnout uh on a pro rata basis between let's say between 20 and 40% growth. Um, and so, you know, we feel like that's a pretty fair structure. Haven't really received pushback on that. Um, but I think, again, it's going to vary. I've heard of others where, you know, they're doing 50 or less percent, uh, cash at close. And then, you know, you, you see, uh, more heavily weighted towards, towards an earnout. or, you know, and there's other mechanisms you can use. There's stability payments, there's deferred payments. Um, you know, there's, I think we have certainly kind of a standard structure we like to use, but we're also always open to, what does the founder have in mind? right? Like this is a partnership. This is about creating a transaction we both feel really good about. Um, so let's have that conversation.
0: What's your general feeling on where e-commerce is going? Do you think it's going to continue to grow? Uh, you know, there's in the press, there was the COVID bump and then uh, there's all this negativity now, you know, Amazon's laying off people, everybody's laying off people. And so there's this doom and gloom kind of thing. That, uh, But I think some of that's just overhyped uh, a little bit. I, I think e-commerce is still is still where it's at and it's still going to be continue to be where it's at so what what are your thoughts on where this whole industry is going
1: yeah I, I would echo your sentiment you know i i think um things are never as bad as they seem and things are also never as good as they seem right i think uh the covid bump pulled a lot of demand kind of forward for e-comm um, i think consumers have demonstrated that there's certain items that they want to purchase that are tangible they want to touch feel smell you know kind of have direct access to as of before making that purchase and i think that's a good thing you know i think of my wife and i uh we've been looking at buying some new you know furniture for our living room for the last like let's say six months we've been looking online we went down to west elm last weekend and it was just that much more effective to actually like sit on stuff and touch mm-hmm. it and feel it and all of that and so i, I don't think retail is going anywhere i certainly don't think e-commerce is going anywhere as well um I'm super, super bullish on, on e-com. I think, you know, I touched on this a little bit before, I think the emergence of micro brands, um, where people that have maybe historically been underrepresented, um, as it relates to like products that capture who they are or that are for their specific use case or their need. I think the emergence of these brands that actually have stories that align with these consumers is tremendous. And, and I think that's, Will only continue to see uh, growth in the number of micro brands. Like I think the barriers to entry to build brands is lower than it's ever been. Um, obviously, it's competitive as well, but I think you've got more people interested in entrepreneurship, more people interested in starting their own companies. Um, so I think the future is is incredibly bright for e-commerce.
0: And if someone that's listening wants to reach out and uh, talk to an incredibly bright aggregator or or someone like yourself how how would they do that
1: yeah so you're know, more than welcome to shoot me an email uh my email is coreon it's k o r i o n at unibrands uh that's u n y b r a n d s .com um and I'm happy to send my my cell number that way um I'm always happy for a chat like shoot me a text give me a call we can connect on linkedin I'm here to support people through their journey um, I'm happy to share insight on, on my own experience, what I wish i learned or wish I knew, um, or, you know, just talk or m- maybe I won't do the, uh, the one chip challenge with you, but I'll, I'll at least talk you through, uh, how to manage it.
0: Cool. Corian, I really appreciate you coming on today and, uh, and suffering through me trying to speak here as I'm recovering from uh, pneumonia. Uh, but, uh, I, uh, it's, this has been great. It's been uh, fun
1: likewise I really appreciate you having me uh, really really glad to hear that you're on the mend uh, and looking forward to, uh, to seeing you again in person here soon and uh, wishing you and the family happy holidays
0: I appreciate it same same to you
1: awesome thanks Kevin
0: Corian's a really smart guy so if you got questions about the exit process or you're thinking about exiting or maybe it's now or maybe it's in a few years feel free to reach out to him at that email address he gave also don't forget, Helium 10 now has a new course called Exit Ticket. That's right. Uh, there's the Freedom Ticket, which I do, and now there's Exit Ticket. And it's a really good comprehensive, uh, like six intensive modules with uh, subsections in each of those modules that breaks down the exact process and everything you need to think about uh, when it comes to exiting your business. It's hosted by Scott Dietz along with uh, Bradley and Carey. Uh, Scott is from the Northbound Group. He's one of the smartest guys out there in the space. So be sure to check out Exit Ticket. You can find that under the Tools section uh, and the Educational uh, Materials under your Helium 10 account. Uh, It's free for anybody that has a Helium 10 account. It's a really great course. Really, really good information for anybody considering exiting their business. Uh, Until next week, I hope you have an awesome uh, December, an awesome fourth quarter. hope things are going well for you. I just want to leave you with one little thought, uh, as I always do at the end. Do you know wealth, freedom, and security come from what you own, not what you do? Think about that for a second. Wealth, freedom, and security come from what you own, not what you do. We'll see you next time. <music>